0: Speaking and performing in public is the number one fear in us humans. That's right, people fear being judged, getting embarrassed and failing in public to be more scary than death. Yes, death. Just let that sink in for a second. We are more worried about our egos and confidence being damaged than ceasing to exist on this planet. Now imagine competing in the Olympics. You've been physically straining your body for three months straight to get to this point. You're so run down, you're actually sick. It's your final performance of the entire event. So it's your last chance to take home the gold for your country. And hundreds of millions of eyeballs are on you. I'm getting anxiety (laughs) just painting that picture. Well, today's woman of impact found herself in that exact situation. Oh, and I failed to actually mention she was 16 at the time. Now, despite all of that working against her, through sheer drive and resilience, she got on that balance beam, blew the judges away, and I'm sure you know, took the gold. But as we all know, and as cheesy as it may still sound, but it's true, what goes up must always come down. And after suffering a serious injury weeks before the 2012 Olympic trials, she was forced to back out and as a result, retire from the sport completely. But the badass that she is, she didn't let this define her. She didn't let her life's work become her sole identity. So what did she do? Well, she did what she does best. She handspringed and split leaped her way to being the youngest contestant to take home the trophy on Dancing with the Stars. Now a New York Times bestselling author with appearances on Celebrity Apprentice, Adventure Capitalist on CNBC, The Tonight Show, The Late Show, Ellen and Oprah, as well as having close to 83 million views on her YouTube channel. Guys, it's just so incredible to see how this woman is writing her own story. So please help me in welcoming the founder of Fit Life, whose tagline is Real Not Perfect. The woman who co-founded The Body Department, a site dedicated to providing an outlet where people can talk about body image, wellness and fitness in a healthy way. The woman who not only has a gold medal, but even more impressively has a heart of gold. The wondrous Shawn Johnson East. Thank you. That was quite the intro, oh my gosh. Seeing what you've done in the Olympics was so incredible and I'm sure most people watching or hearing this has has seen that incredible moment. But I had no idea what happened leading up to it. So from the outside, you look and you're like, oh, she nailed it, like gold medal, amazing. And then I come to find out how sick you were, what you had been through. Mm -hmm. So take me through the mindset of going through that and still performing to the elite level that you
1: did. Oh my goodness. So for most athletes you usually com- compete and train for a couple weeks at a time, you take a week off, you kind of let your body rest, your mind rest, you recoup, you go back out. Well, with the Olympics, Olympic trials, Olympic selection for the United States team, I had been competing and training every single day for over three months straight. And this was over eight to nine hours every day With hardly any sleep, we would compete until, like, midnight or 1 a.m., get four or five hours sleep, and have to do it again. And this was the very last competition on the last day, and my body was just done. My mind was done. And I went into the warm-up just kind of, like, out of it. I just wanted to lay on the couch. I wanted to watch TV. I wanted to eat a cheeseburger. I could have cared less about the Olympics. I kind of took a deep breath. To said a prayer, and I just said, you know what, this is your last chance to show the world the 16 years of of dedication and work and blood, sweat, and tears you've put into this. You can't give it up. My body went into like autopilot, it did everything for me. I didn't even think through anything. And when I landed um my dismount and finished the routine, I remember looking at the judges, and one of the judges kind of like gave me a nod, like, good job. And my coach gave me a huge hug. I looked at my parents in the stands. They were bawling. And I saw number one by my name on the scoreboard. And I was like, "Ah,
0: I did it. Well, it reminded me of, so there's a quote that I love by Mm -hmm. Bruce Lee. And Mm -hmm. he says, he doesn't just, he doesn't think kick. He just kicks. Mm -hmm. And that's how he's gotten to be as good as he is. To Mm -hmm. um, forget that the mind is even there and your body just reacts. Do you think that that's what happened to you? That your mind had been so, like, worn down Mm -hmm. that the best thing that probably could have happened was that you
1: were that tired that your body just took over. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why elite athletes train not only their mind, but their body and vice versa. I mean, we we put in thousands of hours of conditioning and going through the repetitions, but we also put in thousands of hours of working our mind, trying to get focused and learn how to control nerves and learning how to control the negativity and keep it out of your mind, those doubts and fears. And on that last day, the fear and doubt was definitely there. But I think because I was so tired and I was so exhausted, my mind just stopped working. And thankfully, because I put in, as an elite athlete, those thousands of hours mm. of kind of body work, my body was just like, you know what, we got this this time. Like, mind, just go away and we'll do it for you. And it, it worked. But I think it was just a clear indication of if you put in the hours, it'll mm. it'll pay off at some point.
0: Yeah. Um, so talk to me about the, um, <clears throat> the tactics that they had taught you yep. to steer off the fear and mm-hmm. the negativity.
1: Um, okay, so my coach was a firm believer, probably like the biggest believer in mental training that I had ever come across in, in a career. I would go to practice every day and work four or five hours. And he would say, okay, this is body training. But when you go home, it'll be mind training. And at the end of my practice, he would say, here's your assignments when you go home. And he'd say, I want you to picture yourself, like close your eyes, lay in bed, picture yourself walking into the arena, the competition, whatever one it is you're training for. So the Olympics, he said, I want you to hear what the audience sounds like. I want you to see and feel what the beam feels like and picture every move you will make and do it 20 times in a row perfectly. So if you make a mistake or you picture yourself making a mistake, you have to start over like you go back to zero. Ah. And every night when I would go home and he'd say, I want you to picture the Olympic arena during preliminary competition and your beam routine, picture it 20 times in a row. It's really difficult. And it would take me hours. Why do you think it's difficult? I think it's hard because just by nature, I think because of insecurities and fears and doubts as a human Mm. being, we naturally picture ourselves failing. Mm. I think it's just like, almost like the negativity coming in and seeping into your subconscious because you're always like, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? And my coach was a believer that if if you picture it, it will happen. And doing these repetitions mentally, I would get to a point where I could picture 200, 500 routines back to back perfect. And it just kind of strengthens your mind in a way where if you can't let even the image of yourself making a mistake come into your brain, your body shouldn't be able to respond to it.
0: Do you still use that now in in other things that you do?
1: I try to. If I ever find myself in a situation where I'm getting nervous, mm. I'll be like, okay, picture yourself doing it the right way, and yeah. it's all muscle memory. I mean, they they are just even scientific proof that shows if you picture anything, your body's actually doing it just on a smaller scale. Mm. So you have to teach your body to do things the right way, even when you're out of practice in picturing yourself
0: yeah I mean it's so hard to do that as an adult you were 16 years (laughs) old yeah like for people at home like guys do you remember what it's like at 16 I mean it's so scary like the biggest thing that I had to deal with I think was like you know getting on a bus and maybe like getting picked on or something Uh like that at 16 but like you're in front of hundreds of millions Mm -hmm. of people so all this practice that you've got like I get the importance
1: of it Mm -hmm. and Like, on the day, though, how do you just not break? I honestly, I have no idea because, like, being 27 years old now, I could, I feel like I could never do it. Oh, okay. Talk to me about that. Oh, my gosh. There was something beautiful about being 16 because as a kid, you are innocently naive. You don't have all the life distractions. You're not capable of thinking of all the repercussions that can come of such a monumental event. Yeah. You can't even, like, comprehend the magnitude of the situation. But as an adult, you can. And the weight of that pressure can sit in a different manner as an adult. As a kid, my biggest fear was disappointing my my family. And that is a huge weight to bear, but it's not as big as everything that could possibly probably come with it. And so as a 16-year-old, I was conditioned – and trained to deal with my performance in that arena at that time. And I had a coach who saw me as a child who was able to say, oh, she's getting a little distracted. Let mm. me, like, guide her back this way. Yeah. But if you have an adult mindset at 16 or if you have an, an adult mindset on an Olympic stage, you have to deal with so much more. Mm. And I, I'm I'm glad I didn't have to do that.
0: Yeah, I, It really brings me to a quote that you said that um, I found fascinating and so true. Um in gymnastics you see a trend the older you get the more you start visualizing this um this can go very wrong in a child you see the
1: opposite mm-hmm. as kids we are blindly fearless mm-hmm. we don't picture things going wrong we don't you know we don't have that risk assessment yet we just do it and in gymnastics people are always like why are gymnasts so young and i mean just a blatant fact. We're we're girls and the more aerodynamic you are as a prepubescent child, you physiologically can just flip better. Um, but you also have a mindset that is more fearless. You flip mm. on a four-inch beam four and a half feet off the ground and you don't even think twice. As All in the a, weak
0: precautions yeah, of how yeah. serious you could really hurt yourself.
1: I kind of noticed a, a shift when I was like 19, 20 years mm. old. I did. I started picturing myself or I started picturing what could go wrong instead of what could go right. And I, I, I knew that it was pretty much my time to back out of my sport. Mm. Do you now then use that in your life of like anything you're going to approach? Like, okay, there's two ways to think about it, the ways yes. it could go right and
0: the ways it could go wrong.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you allow yourself to think about the ways that could go wrong, you, I mean, you'll not be able to do anything in <laughs> life, anything at all. I mean, you can't eat cereal in the morning because that could end badly. Um So I truly have to approach like everything in life be like, okay, this could be the greatest thing to happen in my life instead of thinking, oh, this could end miserably Mm, wrong. I love that. Um, Talk to me about the burnout that you had then because like the intensity is just crazy. So I started gymnastics when I was two and a half. I was just this little kid that had way too much energy and I, I thought I could fly as a kid. So I put my teeth through my lip. I cracked my head open. I... Did all these things Mm -hmm. trying to actually fly. So my parents put me in gymnastics and said it was like a padded playground that I could just be a kid at. But I had been training probably 40 hours a week for at least six years leading up to the Olympics. I mean, starting from when I was like 10. That's crazy. So you've spent that much
0: time, especially at that age, that must have been everything you identified with. So you go, you get the gold. Um, I mean, you got four medals, mm-hmm. like, let's not forget about the silvers. <laughs> yeah. Um, But then you you stopped for two years. Yep. Can you talk to me about that and the decision behind that?
1: Yeah. So my dream outside of the Olympics, I wanted to do collegiate gymnastics. I also wanted to go to college. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. That was my dream in life. And I wanted to pursue this whole other life outside of being a gymnast. And as soon as the Olympics were done... My coach had taught me from day one that in order to be a gymnast and be successful, you have to have a heart and a passion for it. And I think that goes with everything in life. I think Mm -hmm. you have to truly have a passion to be successful. And for me, I knew at the Olympics that, like, my passion was kind of burnt out. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I looked forward to that finish line. Mm -hmm. And I kind of told myself, like, if if I'm looking forward to a finish line, my passion must not be as strong as it once was. And... Mm -hmm. As soon as the Olympics were over, I felt this freedom of I crossed the finish line. I can take a break now. I don't have to go back to the gym. I don't have to worry about my nutrition plan. I don't have to have these stressors on me. I can focus on college and I can focus on other things Mm -hmm. and a social life and being a 16-year-old kid. And it was just a weight that I needed lifted off my shoulders for a while. And I was good with it, but two years goes by and... It, it starts
0: to come back. How did you navigate that as well? Because I think whether it's you know sports or other things, people are approaching in life. It's like sometimes um, they worry, like, oh my god, have I made the wrong decision? Mm-hmm. Like, how do I spend six years training for something and then step away from mm-hmm. it? What if I regret it? Did any of that process? Um, did you have to go through any of that process? And then when you started to feel like, oh, mm-hmm. maybe I should go back to it, like, talk me through that. In, The mindset behind that. I
1: have a lot of kids, especially in sports, ask me, like, when do I know it's the right time to quit or walk away? If you can truly ask yourself and internalize a question and say, do I love my sport more than anything in the world, that I would sacrifice hard days and family time and hobbies to be in that sport? If you can say no, then you've probably lost that passion. Mm. But for me, as soon as the Olympics were over – I knew my passion wasn't there because I, I had more interest in other things mm. than I did in furthering and progressing in my sport. And two years later, when I started to feel this itch come back, I started to have more interest in gymnastics than those other things. Okay. And I think it's just like at the end of the day, when you get bored, where does your heart lie? Yeah. We'll kind of tell you what you're supposed to be in or not. Yeah. Okay. So you've decided you're going to go back now. Yes. Um, but then you get injured. Yes. It was kind of an interesting situation for me because I tore my ACL. I did reconstructive knee surgery. I came back all the way to the sport. I made it all the way back to world championships. And yes, it, it, it could have been a career-ending in, career injury, mm. but I had dealt with worse. In 2008, I competed on two fractured shins <laughs> and could work through it. Like the pain was there. But yet my, my passion and my drive was so much bigger that I could work through it and it'd be fine. But fast forward now to 2012, I needed to get another surgery and I knew it, which it wasn't career ending, but it was an issue. I had a torn rotator cuff and I had a partially stress fractured um, vertebrae.
0: How oh, was that all? <laughs>
1: that was it. Um, but again, comparing all of that to what I was going through in 2008, It was on par, if not just under, Mm. because it was all manageable things that I could do through physical therapy. But I told my coach, I said, for some reason, my mind can't block out the pain anymore. Wow. And the pain is being magnified in a way that I can't control it. And I kept telling him, I was like, there's something to be said for that. Like, my heart is telling me if I can't block that pain out anymore then my drive must not be there. My mind can't get past it. And I think that's just showing me where my heart is lying. And because in a sport that is so dangerous, if your mind isn't on the proper thing, mm-hmm. you usually see a lot more risk for injury. Yeah. And I, at 19 years old, then I just told my coach, I said, with my mind being on the pain and not being on my performance, I'm risking my, my body even more. And I, I think it's time that I just stepped back. And he, I mean, he was the greatest coach in the world. He was like, as long as you have conviction behind your your decision, I support it 100%.
0: Yeah. So when you've made these changes, mm-hmm. so much of your life has been about gymnastics. You know, you're identified as you've been on Oprah and mm-hmm. Ellen as like, you know, you won a gold medal, mm-hmm. incredible. Um, and, but... Then what's next? (laughs) How do you emotionally make that shift? Um, And then just like deal with your identity change. Because I think so many people, especially women, Mm -hmm. where they go from, you know, whether it's like you're in a marriage and then Mm -hmm. you go to a divorce, right? The Mm -hmm. identity of being a married person to single or you're professional and then not a Mm -hmm. professional Talk me through that change because I think it's so powerful.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think as women especially, we like to put purpose behind our name and we like to very easily define ourselves as whatever it may be. So whether it's a wife, uh, a daughter, a gymnast, Mm. we like to put a title to it because it gives us value and it gives us purpose. And for me, for so long, I was the gymnast. And people gave me respect. They gave me honor because I was a gymnast. Mm -hmm. And – to go on all these shows, to sit with Oprah and have her say, Sean Johnson, the gymnast. It was kind of like, oh, well, what do I do now? And I remember as soon as the Olympics were over in 2008, I always tell people I felt like I ran straight into a brick wall when I woke up the next morning because Mm. I felt free because I no longer had to train and do all of that. But I also felt completely lost because for 16 years, every decision I made on a daily basis was based around – defining myself as a gymnast. What I ate, how I trained when I woke up, when I went to sleep, who I hung out with, how I talked, how I presented myself, what I wore. It was all in the image of the gymnast. And to have that now go away, I was like, okay, who am I as an individual? And I felt like I, I had to start over. I had a great community of people around me, but the transition is truly like a bad breakup. You just mm. feel lost in life. And my family was really good at encouraging me to just try new hobbies and get out there and see where a passion would kind of spark. And I was lucky to have Dancing with the Stars contact me. And I went on that show, and that kind of gave me a few months to pause the decision of who I was mm-hmm. as an individual. But it, it grew my confidence in a way that it allowed me to prove to myself I could be more than a gymnast. We do put so much weight on a title. And I just always tell people if you're, if you are transitioning, just try everything. Mm. Like make new friends, put yourself in different communities, try new hobbies and activities just to kind of replace what it was you were doing before. Yeah. Do you feel like you had to mourn the loss
0: of being a gymnast?
1: Oh yeah. Just because that's who I was. I mean, kind of like you were saying, if you're going through a divorce, you absolutely have to mourn the life you had and you also have to celebrate the new life you're you're creating but it's a really hard time i mean i remember standing on the olympic podium after the beam competition getting my last medal and people always say like what does it feel like and i tell them it's the most confusing feeling in the world because you're crossing a finish line and you're so proud and you're so excited but you're so sad and you're so scared for what's on the other side mm-hmm. because everything you know as an individual and person is in front of the finish line. But when you go past it, it's all new. And that's terrifying. Yeah. You're just starting over and it's a crazy situation to be in, but it's also exciting.
0: Yeah.
1: um, I desperately
0: now mm-hmm. want to talk about the things that you're doing because yeah. – um. I love the mindset that you've just laid out for mm-hmm. being the athlete. But like you said, you're so much more than that. Mm-hmm. So you. talk to me. You're doing a lot of um, philanthropy work. Mm-hmm. Um, you've written two incredible books where you're being very open and honest mm-hmm. about the things that you've had to go through. Um, how do you get the confidence to do that? In <laughs> fact, actually, let me back up. You wrote a blog. yeah, And you said there are basically six keys yes. to building your confidence that you have to address. Yeah. And you said diet. hmm are you antisocial? Mm-hmm. Um, your hormonal imbalance, jealousy, new goals, and treating yourself. Tell me, which one do you think is the most important one of that for people out that, or for you to adopt in order for you to build your confidence to go from being mm-hmm. a gymnast to dancing to now what you
1: do? Oh my goodness! I would say, kind of building on the antisocial. Okay, um, I did not expect that one. Yeah, ninety percent of your confidence has to come with from within but the other 10% comes from who you're around and if you're around the wrong people if you're putting yourself in situations where you're too insecure to put yourself in new situations if you are reading blogs, Mm. if you are reading social media, and letting that kind of seep in, it just kills confidence. And I feel like when I talk to young women and young girls who are struggling with self-confidence issues and eating disorders or whatever it may be, I always say the the way I found a way out of it was to surround myself with people who cared about me and who could reinforce the things that my mind didn't want to tell me. Mm. And if you're antisocial, if you don't want to surround yourself with people who are telling you good things, it's just going to make your problems bigger.
0: Wow. And so that's what you did to um, so people who may not know. You've mm-hmm. spoken very openly about body image. And
1: um, would, you, would you say you were anorexic? Or um, I think I was kind of everything mm, okay. at one point. Uh, being a gymnast... I tried being anorexic, which sounds strange to say, but I was a very muscular gymnast. I wasn't the Nastia lucans right. of the world. And I lived in a time in gymnastics where judges favored more of a Nastia body. It was the first time in the sport where you started to see these really muscular gymnasts come to light, kind of like Simone Biles or Ali Raisman. Mm-hmm. We hadn't seen that in the sport before. And I was kind of the first one to, to break that way. And so I had so many people critiquing my body and saying, if you don't look like Nausea, then we're going to deduct or it'll affect your performance. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's a subjective sport. People oh are technically yeah. allowed to do that.
0: <laughs> and
1: as a 16-year-old kid, I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have you know, the nutrition background. I didn't, I didn't know how to look like Nastia, but perform like me. And so I would try to eat less and I would try to starve myself and it never worked. And then I would try to work out more and I would get tired or hurt myself and that wouldn't work. And it was just, it was just this battle of trying desperately to fit a mold, but knowing that if I was just me, I was going to succeed a lot more. Did you come to that acceptance during the, um,
0: your comp- competitions or after?
1: I, I struggled with it. I'd say I was like on the verge of mm. eating disorders when I was in gymnastics just because I had that perfectionism mindset. But I would regain confidence in my body and myself every time I competed and I won or did well. And so it would be easier to stand on a podium with a gold medal and say, oh, you keep telling me I need to change, but yet – I'm wearing a gold medal, so I could kind of counteract those negative thoughts. I would say most of my my bigger issues where I, I truly struggled came after gymnastics when I lost my identity and had to start over. When I was on Dancing with the Stars in front of hundreds of millions of people and going through puberty and being a 16-year-old girl next to these beautiful, stunning women and being compared and seeing... My body transitioned from an elite athlete to just a normal girl. I, I really struggled with how to balance that. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, as long as I go back to looking like the Olympic girl, then maybe people will stop critiquing. And so I, I, that's where most of my issues came in. Yeah. How did you work through that? Because you want to talk about a subject that yeah. I'm sure
0: every single yeah. woman, pretty much every single woman has ever had to go yes. through. Um, how did you deal with that?
1: I I fought it for a really long time. So I was kind of in denial for many years, just kind of fluctuating in weight mm-hmm. and struggling with confidence and issues. And I remember I finally talked to a friend of mine who had gone through a lot of things, and she set me up with um, her. She's kind of like a therapist but also a nutritionist. Okay. And I started talking to her every week and went – worked with her for years. And it was like little by little by little by little, I started to see improvements. Or we would be a year and a half out of our first kind of conversation. And she would say, do you remember the first day when you said this? Now look at where you are. And I just started to gain like little momentum and little steps of confidence that built over the years. People always look for a quick fix, but I say, That's how everything starts.
0: Yeah.
1: Everyone always looks for the quick fix. There is that one.
0: Yeah. In anything. Yeah. Um, You've lived your life. Oh, my God. Talk about, (laughs) like, always putting yourself out there to um, be criticized. I mean, like you Mm -hmm. were saying, right, you went from gymnastics to then dancing with the Mm -hmm. stars. Like, it's not like you hid. Yeah. Right? No, Um, no, no. no. It is hard to not feel judged or to let the outside noise interfere from social media. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're just, you're playing on such a big platform mm-hmm. and a big stage. How do you block out that noise?
1: Uh, when I first was going through it, when I was first, when Twitter first started and I first started reading all the comments or newspaper articles or um, blogs at the time, mm-hmm. um, it was a lot harder to block it out. I would say if you're, if you're new to it, you have to find a community of people around you to help negate all of the bad comments, but for me now, I try to take um, a little different approach of, every time I read a negative comment, instead of reading it as a personal attack, I always try to say, okay, that's someone who is scarred, who is lashing out. And I try to just think of that actual person instead of thinking, They want to hurt me. I feel like they're actually just hurting inside. Wow, you literally just gave (laughs) me the chills.
0: That's so true. Um, What I love is that you don't stop. (laughs) right it's like some people it's Mm -hmm. like you know you you put yourself out there you allow yourself to be a bit vulnerable and then something happens and then all the walls come back up the doors start Mm -hmm. closing because you don't like the feeling it gives you but you keep pushing like you lean into it more I've noticed Uh um and that brings me to you do videos with your husband Andrew who's amazing you guys are awesome together um and you did a video about your miscarriage yes and Like, that's, like, next level vulnerable because you guys weren't even just saying it in hindsight. No. You guys were, like, filming the entire process with the doctor as you're Mm -hmm. finding out these results. Like, that's just, like, next level vulnerability. Um, Tell me
1: about that Mm -hmm. and then how you just keep leaning into Mm -hmm. it. Uh, So that was a crazy, crazy process. I found out I was pregnant back last October and it was not something we were planning it was a surprise but because we were living kind of these influencer lifestyles and putting things on YouTube I started filming the day I found out I was pregnant not because I wanted to post it like I never planned on posting it oh it was a hundred percent because my husband and I had already talked had already talked about someday when we have children we want to document it for us We want to be able to document it so we can look back and say, Do you remember the day you found out you're pregnant? Do you remember the day that you told me? And so that's why I started filming. I wasn't filming for the world, I was filming just because it was this monumental event. And fast forward a week when I got to tell my husband, some issues started arising. I had stomach pains and we weren't sure what it was. So we went to the hospital. Again, we asked to film, but again, We were hoping to expect good news and say, oh, no, the baby's still there. And it be part of our story that we can, again, look back on. And fast forward even more, I had miscarried. We were going through an emotional roller coaster. And I don't think a husband can ever truly wrap their mind around what it is a woman goes through just because of the hormones and what we're, you know, like what we're going through internally. And Andrew was a godsend. He just, he held my hand. He didn't try to fill, fill space with words. He was just there. And he said, whatever you need to heal, just let me know. And I remember thinking, we have all this footage and it was my idea. And I said, I want to post this. And he thought I was absolutely crazy. He's like, the emotional state you're in right now, I don't want to jeopardize anything or put you at risk for, negativity that the world can bring. So I don't think that's a smart idea. Mm. And I just kept pushing it. I said, no, I really wanna push, like I really wanna post this. And I feel very convicted to do it. I don't know why. It was kind of a crazy move. Mm. And I remember posting it and it was almost instantly. I mean, we were getting millions of views. We were number one on trending. It was on the Today Show the next morning. And none of that mattered, but what I thought was fascinating was the thousands and thousands and thousands of comments that came back. Not a single one bad. And every single one was a woman or a husband or a father or a mother telling their story of miscarriage and telling their story of how they got through it. And it's exactly what I needed to heal. I think I was just in dire need of someone to help me. Mm -hmm to know what the, to tell me what to do, that I needed a community behind me and I got it. And it was, it was incredible.
0: And to maybe feel like you weren't alone because so many other people had gone through
1: it, right? Absolutely. You might never know it, but I'm a very, very shy and guarded person by nature. So even talking to my mom about it was hard. She would say, oh honey, I'm so sorry. And she'd be crying on the phone. And then my response would be like, I'm fine, I'm good it's okay next time. And I needed, I needed someone who had been through it to say, this is normal, it's okay, and this is how you'll get through it. And we had millions of those and it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. The community that rallied behind that video mm-hmm. is, in,
0: is amazing. So I don't have kids. I've mm-hmm. never had a miscarriage before. So I'm, I come from a certain, you know, view mm-hmm. perspective. And so when I was watching the video, it didn't even dawn on me until the doctor said to you, now this mm-hmm. isn't your fault. Mm-hmm. And because I've never yeah. gone through it, it never dawned on me that people would blame themselves oh, yeah. because I always hear, like, I know so many women that have had yep. miscarriages that I just think of it as like human nature, mm-hmm. right? But it never dawns on me. And he made it a point yeah. in the video to tell you that. Yeah. Did that
1: occur to you? So I was a lot like you up until that moment. Mm. So I kind of saw things black and white. I was like, oh, You know, I knew people who had gone through miscarriages, but in my mind, I had never taken the route of, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, it's such a tragic loss. I always saw it as, that's just part of the natural order. That's Mm -hmm. how things happen. Um, But as soon as it happened to me, it was shocking because I'm not a very emotional person in the sense of, like, placing blame and guilt and on myself, I always try to look for like the logical reasons. And so the doctor was was saying all these logical things, like it, it's, it could be this or that or this. And then he made the point of, it's not your fault. And I just started bawling. And I remember later on, not talking to the doctor about it, but Andrew and just saying, I feel like I failed as an individual because there is something. And again, I was never this like believer until then, But there is something that changes in a woman when you get pregnant. And it it becomes this maternal instinct, which I I thought was always just like a random thing people talked about and was cheesy. (laughs) Um, But it's real. Um, But I had this maternal instinct to do whatever it took to take care of this human being. And when you're told as a mother that you've miscarried, instead of hearing the logic, I heard like, you didn't take care of them well enough. Mm. And in a way, it almost, like, this sounds very harsh, but it almost feels like you've killed your child. And I remember thinking, like, straight doubt, straight guilt, straight fear. And having the doctor reiterate that was kind of like, I mean, you, you even saw it in the video. He makes a point to try to get it into my head of, like, mm. it's not you. And it took me a while to really believe that. Yeah. What did you do to get there then? Um I tried very hard again because I'm a very guarded person I don't like to talk about my feelings much. Yeah. Which is very And here I am yeah, saying. saying. <laughs> <you're> <laughs> feel. Which is very weird considering <laughs> like we're here and I'm on YouTube <laughs> and
0: I share my feelings a lot now. Which um, I appreciate and I hope everyone's actually paying attention and listening because people are gonna dismiss you to say like, yeah. oh, it's easy for her. But <gasps> I think it's important yeah. for people to hear that. And so thank you for sharing. Yeah. That.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's also how I, how I was raised in the gymnastics community mm-hmm. because as ki- a kid, I was always taught don't show emotion, don't show weakness, don't show the world what's going on inside. You are a machine and you always show show strength. I learned very quickly how to turn off emotion and just go cold and say, I'm good. I'm fine. Let's move on. I tried to make like a pact with myself from day one that I was going to be very open with my husband. And it was a lot for him. Again, it's like I understand how hard it is for a husband or a father just because they don't go through it the same Mm -hmm. way. So I understood that it was very confusing to him. But just having him sit there and listen and being able to voice everything that I felt internally really helped me sort through my thoughts and my feelings and get past it. Um, I think I'll always, like, hold part of it in my Mm. heart, but I think that's normal. Yeah. It's just another scar. Mm. Um, Mm. But I've truly gotten to a point where I feel healed by it. Yeah. That's great. So you have said, though,
0: that you're not going to let what has happened stop mm-hmm. you from trying again. Yes. Um, that seems like so much of your personality and everything that you've done, that yes. even if something goes wrong or something's bad, that you're not going to let that stop you. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any like moments in your life, though, that you feel like, oh, no, I shouldn't because you failed or because something went wrong?
1: Oh, every day of my life. Okay. I mean, I feel like that's normal for any human to feel. I mean, the fear and doubt of failure can consume anyone's life on any given day. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fear of failure of getting on stage or the fear of failure of having a child. People want to naturally protect themselves from pain. And nobody wants to feel loss Mm -hmm. or failure or anything. So we always try to, like, bubble wrap ourselves so we never have to experience it. And Because I have felt those things and because I know how bad they can hurt, but because I know I've gotten through all of it, Mm. I try not to bubble wrap myself. And I try to say, even in moments of fear, like, okay, the worst case scenario that can happen is this, but you've already survived it. So you might as well go for it again. And I would say I am a little more timid that way sometimes. Mm. It might take me longer to get to that point to try. But my husband is very good at pushing me um, past my comfort zone, which I love. I hate, but I love. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because I think the most limiting factor in the world for anyone is holding yourself back because of fear. Mm. And it's the most natural thing in life, but it's something you you can't allow yourself to to act on. Mm. Do you do like mantras or anything like that or Um, post-it notes or... My mom taught me from day one. She always just reminded me. She would say it when I was in the backseat of the car, crying because I didn't fit in with the popular kids or whatever. She would just say, honey, everything happens for a reason. Good, bad, or ugly, it happens for a reason. And I try to always tell myself, like, if you make mistakes, if you fail, if you succeed, you are supposed to, and you need to learn from it because it all is supposed to happen And I don't know, I don't want to waste a moment, mm-hmm. so. What I love is that does
0: change your perspective, just how you're mm-hmm. looking at a situation, mm-hmm. right? Because so many people say, like, the why me? Or, you know, mm-hmm. I used it all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, why me? The victim mentality. But mm-hmm. if you just reframe it and say if it happens for a reason and it allows you to go, but, then what is the mm-hmm. reason?
1: Exactly. A very um, popular question that people always like to ask you is, like, do you have any regrets? Or what is your biggest regret in your career? Mm-hmm. And I very quickly tried to, like, coin the phrase to myself that I don't believe in regrets because everything happens for a reason. I mean, the big if I bombed on the Olympic stage, if I fell on my face in every competition, I wouldn't regret that because mm. that would have been a life lesson I had to have learned from.
0: I read this Einstein quote,
1: actually, mm-hmm. where someone, and uh, not Einstein,
0: um, it was Edison, okay. and someone asked uh, him, like, you know, basically, um, how do you feel about your, you know, thousand mistakes that yeah. you've made to get to the light bulb? And he's like, they weren't mistakes, yep. they were
1: steps. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, especially in gymnastics, I always say gymnastics is the most humbling sport, because you literally have to fall on your face, or <laughs> split the beam, or break ribs, or whatever, before you succeed, mm-hmm. and... I think that was the greatest lesson to learn as a kid that you have to fall. you have to fall flat on your face before you can ever make it to the Olympic stage. And I don't think there's many other sports that teach you that, but I think it's a great life lesson for a kid to have, hmm. because it, it shows you and proves to you as a child that it's okay to fail. Hmm. And a different way to look at it is like there's no such thing as failure because it leads to success i love that well speaking of success it
0: seems like you and your husband just like have a beautiful relationship and that's not to say that you guys don't work hard at it thank you i'm sure you really yeah (laughs) Yeah. exactly Um, talk to me about your relationship with him because in one of your videos you said um, you guys were like giggling about something (laughs) and you're like we'll watch this video when we're in our rocking chairs Uh and we're really old and we're gonna laugh at Uh it um I love that you guys have that vision of like, this is going to be for life. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think are some key things that you have to do in your relationship Mm -hmm. in order for you to get to that point where you're in your rocking chair in your Mm -hmm. 80s?
1: I would say for us, we have an agreed upon mindset with our relationship that we agreed very early on that we are going to fight through it. We are never going to turn our backs. We're never going to say, I don't want to fight with you right now. This isn't the, the moment or place. We're going to fight through it because we love each other enough to do it. The rocking chair comment, we were laughing at it because we had just gotten on in a huge argument and we still had to film that day. And we were so salty towards each other. And we said, we're going to look back under in our rocking chairs and laugh at this moment because we fought through it. We loved through it, and we're now on the other side just laughing. But I think my biggest advice to any relationship is relationships are are not easy. No good relationship is easy, and I think people expect them to be. Mm. But if you go into a relationship saying this is going to be the hardest thing you do in your life and you expect that, then it'll be the greatest thing you do in your life. Mm. That's awesome. And your
0: communication with each other as well is very on point.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, um, we always say we're transparent probably too, like too far. Mm-hmm. But the one rule we, we made when we started dating was full transparency. Like if you are feeling doubt in, a, in the relationship or fear, like some of the ugliest thoughts that people are afraid to share, we want to share them. Because we want to know each other's mindset. We want to know what they're feeling. We want to know... Like, I wanted to know on our wedding day that we both felt nervous. Mm. Like, I think that's normal. Mm. I wanted to know I wasn't the only one saying, am I sure I'm marrying the right person? Which he he felt the same way. We just try to be very open with each other. And I think it it helps our relationship. Well, how do you think it helps? Like, I think it helps because I feel like... For us, or for me in particular, and as women, I feel like our minds run, and we always try to paint pictures and fill in gaps, and I feel like that kind of very easily can lead us astray. I feel like when I'm constantly trying to figure out what he's thinking, I'm thinking something completely worse or wrong, which is women. Um, so I feel like with being transparent, the more I know about him, the more I know good, bad, and ugly, the more I know what he's thinking, the less room it leaves for me to interpret. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it makes me love him even more because we're both just so human and things aren't perfect. And I just love that about us
0: yeah i got I love that so much (laughs) I could talk to you for hours my dear um where can people find you online what's coming up how can we get these guys
1: to yeah um so we have our YouTube channel which is just Sean Johnson and we post everything from like love stories and like relationship series to house hunting and how you do that and all random things um Instagram is Sean Johnson across social platforms at Sean Johnson and My husband is Andrew East. Yeah. And my final question, what
0: is your superpower that you
1: consider yourself to have? My superpower? I'd say my superpower is probably, um, even when I'm terrified of things, I try to still go for it. And I have been literally dripping sweat, like shaking in my boots to do things before, but I'll still do it.
0: That's amazing. Guys, this woman is literally. I wore the shirt, in fact, especially for her. I love she this is shirt. like Wonder Woman to me. And she said it in this interview, especially that she would break bones because as a kid, she actually <laughs> thought she could fly. And that's not surprising, though, because if you actually like in sitting with her and talking to her, the mindset that she has is that she can do anything, she can accomplish anything that she puts her mind to it. And to me, that is what being a your own superhero is. It's about setting a goal, having a vision and going out there and going for it. And so when I asked her what her superpower is and it's to go for it, it was no surprise mm-hmm. to me because that's what she's embodied throughout her entire life and career. So guys, Please, if you take one thing away from this episode, it is that you need to go out and go for it. Before you do that, subscribe, press that little mm-hmm. click button down there. Follow me at Lisa Billu. And guys, until next time, go be the hero of your own life. Peace out.